Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now joining us is someone that was way out front. In fact, maybe President Trump read his book, The Price of Civilization. Jeffrey Sachs is at Columbia University. He is a dyed-in-world liberal. He is someone who does not agree with the president, but he has to see how the president applies policy here. You were way out front on the struggles of this nation with your book, Price of Civilization. The president struck a third rail with the American public, a poorer opioid, the, the different other issues that are out there that are all in your book. I mean, you were way out. What is the prescription to get this administration to begin a constructive dialogue with liberals, independents, and Republicans? This administration is not having a constructive dialogue with anybody right now. What happened at the G20 this weekend was alarming, actually. They couldn't even make a statement opposing protectionism because Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, held the ground to say, no, we're not going to oppose protectionism. We're not going to make a statement about climate change. So 19 to 1. The U.S., Trump is absolutely arraying the whole world against the U.S. You watch it step by step. That's, that's what's happening. Would you suggest, and just in one issue, the opioid epidemic, Rob Portman, I'm going to suggest, doesn't read uh, Jeffrey Sachs. He's a Republican, a moderate from Ohio. He probably is aware of your work, but he doesn't read it word for word, except right now, you and the senator from Ohio have more common ground than with the president. Can the Democrats co-opt a Republican centrist group to oppose this administration? Well, let me just say a word about what's happening our society's falling apart. This has been clear for years. There's a divide between those who have a college education, times couldn't be better, and those who have a high school degree, jobs are falling, wages are falling, mortality rates are rising, opiate addiction rising, suicide rates rising. So along comes the Republican health plan. It's to cut the tax at the top, and throw more than 20 million people off of health care coverage. Are they kidding? Are they kidding? What are they doing? It's dreadful what's going on right now. And we have to say it. Today, you know, you said I'm in a, you introduced me uh, earlier as miserable mood because today's supposed to be world, it, it is World Happiness Day. And we are releasing the World Happiness Report. The United States is in a free fall right now. Out of the 34 OECD right. countries. The U.S. came in 21st this well, let's, year. We're going to come back to that in right. this uh, hour with Jeff Sex. Francine? 
Yeah, but so Jeffrey, th this is why people voted for Trump, right? He's trying to fix um, a, a problem. Now you're saying he's fixing it badly and he's focusing on the bad things or he's going about it the wrong way. How would you deal with this unhappiness or this uneasiness that we clearly saw in the American people to give them something better? We would have rich people pay taxes and we would have poor people on health care. That's simple. We would say, okay. we tell the truth in this country that the rich have never had it better, they've never had more money, they've never had more rise of incomes, and they should do something for our society. And what he's doing is exactly the opposite. Right. He's given every single position in this administration to Goldman Sachs so that they can cut taxes right. at the top. It's but a Jeffrey heist. Sachs but he was but he was voted on that platform right yeah but then it's, it's bait and switch but this is not it's, a surprise. it's complete bait and switch he said i'm going to fight wall street and then he gave every top position in the administration to one company how much more bait and switch can it be we have to tell the truth about what's happening in this country it's dramatic it's a right, war a on people, the poor but Jeffrey Sachs, do you um, actually admit that a lot of people in the U.S. voted for President Trump because he was going to deregulate? And no, you, and, no. And, and they voted what, for him. Again, I'm not saying it's bad or wrong, but this is what people voted for. They voted for him because he made promises to them, and he <laughs> is lying. I'm sorry. This is the basic okay, but very, I, very quickly here, did Secretary Clinton lose this election because she didn't go after Midwest Democrats who are more conservative than the East Coast liberals like you? She lost the election because she was a lousy candidate and she didn't have a position that people trusted. And Donald Trump said, I'm going to help you. And what he's doing is yeah. helping his billionaire buddies. It's so clear. It's obvious. Uh, as long as we look at what he's really doing. Don't watch what he tweets. Watch what he yeah. says. Watch what he's doing. God, I feel miserable. We're going to talk happiness with Jeffrey Sachs here uh, in a moment. I just had a nightmare thought. Jeffrey Sachs playing golf with Donald Trump down uh, in Florida. That'd be that would quite be a, quite that would a round. Be, that would be quite okay. a round, to say uh, the least. Jeff Sachs, thank you so much. Verliger joining us on PK uh, Verliger on oil. Phil, we've got your new research note. And folks, we protect the copyright of our guests. I'm not going to send it out to you. And you go right to gasoline. Why does a pro like you look at gasoline dynamics? Well, simply, it, gasoline is probably, <clears throat> excuse me, probably the most important component of petroleum demand. Uh, and it's also the one that's most influenced by economic cycles and by expectations. Uh, and, and this report, uh, and what I've been writing about for a while, I've been looking at the failure, essentially, of most following the market to uh, recognize the consumers respond uh, in an anticipatory fashion. Uh, you know, I take, take my cues from uh, my old classmate and good friend Stan Fisher uh, of the Fed. Uh, monetarists talk about expectations and how consumers adjust ahead of time uh, when they uh, hear news about changes in the Fed rate. Consumers have done the same thing in the case of gasoline. Uh, we had strong growth in gasoline uh, on a year-over-year -year basis every month uh, in 2015 and 2016 until OPEC said, or Saudi Arabia said, we want to raise oil prices. And then consumers heard the news and immediately began changing their consumer pattern. 
nothing surprising here. The big surprise is that those who follow the market, follow oil markets, totally ignore this. And gasoline is, you know, a good portion of petroleum demand. How tight is this market getting right now? How tight is the gas market getting? Gasoline market is getting a little tighter because people have produced a less, uh, less, and because a good deal of gasoline has been exported. Uh, the gasoline was sloshing around the East Coast two or three weeks ago, two, uh, uh, maybe a month ago, and large volumes were sent uh, to other parts of the world because the prices just couldn't be held up. But you know, gasoline supply is uh, is getting a little tight. But gasoline demand looks to be down relative to uh, last year by about 2-3%. I know you were paying close attention to that SARA conference in Houston uh, a week or two ago, the IHS market conference. What's the biggest news that came out of there as you listened to all those uh, speakers on stage in Houston? Uh, I was I wasn't there. Uh you know, uh, Jurgen and I haven't spoken since 1985. <laughs> uh and uh, the uh but the news that came out to me was the attempt by the oil exporting countries to try to get U.S. producers to cooperate. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, they had a dinner. Uh, they had a, the Nigerian delegation, I think, had the dinner. And uh, every antitrust lawyer in the country must have been squirming because, you know, the, the idea of a group of producers getting together to talk about controlling production any place in the world is scary, but doing it in the United States is really dangerous. And it shows OPEC's desperation, the producer desperation, uh, yeah. with essentially the change in technology in drilling and finding oil. Uh, they are working, uh, you know, the U.S. producers are working extremely hard to drive costs down, and Moore's Law, the uh, Moore from Intel, yeah. uh, that technology doubles every uh, with every new well, generation, or speed doubles, applies to oil fracking. So suddenly people are talking <clears> about being profitable yeah. at $20 a barrel. Phil, we had a real Phil Verliger moment. Ten days ago, Edward Moore stark on the door, the acclaimed uh, oil uh, theologist at Citigroup, and basically said oil stability, maybe it works higher. But he said, given a longer time frame, we go to the land of Phil Verliger, which is cheaper oil. What will be the catalyst if we have stability, if we go to somewhat of a higher per barrel? What will be the catalyst to get us to the Verliger vision? It'll be it'll be a the same sort of catalyst. Uh, it, the, the catalyst is technology. Uh, the 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 fact that every every time we drill another well, we're uh, we're finding new things. I mean, one of the stateless Schlumberger's president out there came out with a statement that uh, the amount of data one uses right now for a well. Uh, is the amount of uh, constitutes the amount of data on two high definition television uh, tele- movies. Uh, I mean, big data is just beginning to arrive into the oil business, and when it arrives, uh, we're just going to have an overwhelming fall in cost yeah. and an overwhelming expansion in opportunity. Yeah. And it's going to happen here. It's going to happen in Argentina where there's uh, uh, right. a great opportunity. It's going to happen in Russia where there's a great deal of shale. Yeah. Uh, we're going to, uh, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago, uh, Spencer Dale of BP uh, came out with a, a thing, and I think I came out with it about the same simultaneously, but it is, is that oil is no longer a finite resource. Uh, so much oil is going to have to be left in the ground. It's really a race to see who, who loses. You, uh, you very kindly quote and praise our colleagues, uh, Liam Denning and Javier uh, Blas here of Bloomberg uh, News, on the issue of technology. And what I find fascinating is how 
uh, the old hands, the oil producers are processing all of this technological change. Talk a bit about that, how they're, how they're facing uh, this change. Well, it, it, it's, not the, it's not really the oil producers. It's the companies like Schlumberger and so on. Now, I'm a visiting fellow at the School of Mines. Uh, we've just moved here to Denver. And the School of Mines produces some of the best engineers uh, in the world. Uh, it's been recognized for years. And what, what, what's happening is all these young engineers are coming out knowing all these new technologies. So a woman I know who's working uh, for, for, for Schlumberger, I think, down in, in Texas, comes out, is totally trained in new technology and everything, and they bring all this technology to the to the drilling companies, and then the drilling companies apply it steadily uh, to the uh, to the wells, and and just essentially bring along these uh, the, uh, the companies who are are developing. It's it's in many ways it's like the agricultural business. It's the farmers uh, are the customers for the John Deere's and the Monsantos. The Monsantos produces the new uh, the new uh, seeds and the farmers buy the seeds and double and triple their uh, their products. So it's it, it, it's it's that sort of relationship. And the universities and the companies yeah. like Schlumberger and Baker Hughes are just <clears throat> all developing are, these technologies and driving costs down. What are you doing in Golden, Colorado? Did you, is this like a big salary and a six pack of cores every time? <laughs> no, it comes out, out of the faucet. It comes out of the faucet. I, I think I, Golden. I moved down there. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who's teaching there. I, I was supposed to teach there back in the early '90s and I had a medical issue. Uh, asked me they have a, a new uh, research institute, the Pain Institute, and what I'm looking for is is an opportunity to work with some of these younger students yeah. and and spread the economics and 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 as I said when I was talking about the demand here yeah. in gasoline is you know the monetary economists have moved ahead with rational expectations and you just read their material and, and Stanley's a, uh, I've watched Stanley okay. for years and. The, that this whole economics, the way of thinking about economic demand for petroleum right. and so on, has yet well, to penetrate the oil. Let's community. come back. Phil Verliger with us on the Colorado School of Mines. What have we learned about the role of OPEC now and going forward in light of what we've seen since that deal was inked a few months back? Well, OPEC has been struggling to be relevant uh, for s- several years. Um, in the early part of this decade, uh, we had uh, a series of disruptions of supply, Nigeria, Libya, Syria, and a tight oil market. And, you know, OPEC essentially ignored what was going on and produced at full rate. So this was no different than the market for wheat. Uh, when the production disruptions uh, essentially passed and the U.S. oil supply came in, uh, the organization looked to try to reorganize, and, and this is the way cartels work, and cut production and, and, and to, to sustain prices. And what they have found is that essentially in today's world, they are um, at best a very marginal player as an organization. The reason is that demand is now a good deal more price sensitive. I spoke about the consumers responding quickly to news of higher prices. Consumers are more astute. And secondly, that the supply response is much quicker and the costs, again, as we were talking on the previous segment, are falling much more rapidly. So mm-hmm. OPEC, I think, is OPEC's day has passed. And uh the, the organiz- attempts by groups of countries, such as uh, especially high-cost countries, producers like Venezuela, 
are uh, waging a, a rearguard war. They are not uh, ultimately going to be successful. They may hold prices up a little bit and just provide a much greater incentive for uh, 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 lots of small producers, uh, relatively small producers such as EOG and, and others, and Pioneer, just to, to keep pushing ahead and expand supply. Uh, you know, if you want to say, put it bluntly, uh, they've been overtaken by technology. I'm still confused here about the, 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 the metrics that we use to gauge how these countries are upholding their ends of, of the bargain. With Saudi Arabia in particular, they released their own figures. We had figures from an international organization as well. What do you prize more? When you're, when you're looking for, for outputs, say, what are you looking at? I, I very rarely try to do that. I, what I do is I turn to the market. I turn to the futures market. Uh, yeah, you know, I was uh, at when a company called Drexel Burnham was around. I was helping create this market, and today we have over five and almost five and a half billion barrels of oil uh, outstanding in futures contracts. And what you do is you look at the shape of the forward price curve and how the companies are responding, and you look at the cash prices. Uh, mm-hmm. It is, you know, what OPEC says it's doing is. It has become irrelevant. Now, I know this is, this is what people have watched for 50 years. And as I'm moving into this new home, uh, I've got 100 boxes of file cabinets and books, and you look at all these old books and so on where people talked about OPEC and how we had to follow production and so on. And, and it's all quaint. It's, it's like filing away old train schedules when you used to use the train to go across the country. I mean, I, I look, Phil, at where we are. And we've gone from a hundred dollar framework down to twenty nine and back up to fifty ish. When you think about it every day, what is the thing our audience should watch in the oil market? If I were watching, you know, if if I'm if I'm an investor, uh, I wouldn't be watching so much the oil market because it's 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 not going to move dramatically. Uh, what I'm watching is uh, North Korea. Uh, so you go back to political analysis. I go back to the driver. fact that if somebody does something that takes a lot of demand off the market, uh, which is what uh, an attack on North Korea would do, mm-hmm. or takes a lot of supply off the market, you're going to be in a very different situation. And every commodity market is this way. You know, yeah. you look at copper. There's this big strike down in Chile. That's changed the dynamics okay. of the copper market. It it is something like that. You know, I picked North okay. Korea because that's the highest no. scary thing right now. But it is, you know, it is not in the oil market right now. It's okay, the world. Phil, we got to leave it there. Phil Verliger, thank you so much, and congratulations on uh, analysis of gasoline as the dynamic going into the warmer um, season. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. On the Spectrum Enterprise phone line, Jack Bogle. Mr. Bogle, wonderful to speak to you again. What has changed is not so much the migration of billions of dollars from active to passive, but just in the last six months, we are now 
at what appears to be a crisis moment for active managers. Mergers, 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 cutting of costs, et cetera. Where will active management be in five years? Well, it will almost certainly be a smaller proportion of the mutual fund industry than it is today. And today, passive is around 35% of mutual fund, equity mutual funds. And, uh, you know, it could get, it, it gets very tough to build these numbers, these share numbers. But I would say probably five years from now, it would be over 40%, maybe, maybe over 45 There's a very strong tide out there, Tom, as you know. And amazingly, I mean, the, the uh, ETF, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the index, total index fund business uh, was, was doing about $40 billion last year. And this year, $40 billion a month, a month. And uh, this year, in the first two months, it's something like $67 billion. That's a huge increase in, um, in index fund flows. I haven't seen all the data for active management, but they're still very, very, very negative. I want to quote a letter here from one Warren Buffett of Omaha, Nebraska. Quote, if a statue is ever erected to honor the person who's done the most for American investors, the hands-down choice should be uh, Jack Bogle. What's your relationship like with, uh, with Warren Buffett, and uh, how, how closely, how in sync are your two uh, investing strategies? Well, they're in many respects identical. Uh, I first met Warren probably in about 1985 at a state securities commissioners meeting in in the San Diego, California. Uh, we had a nice chat, and uh, we've stayed in touch really a little bit ever since. He's written forwards to my books. Uh, he's done a great blurb, if you will, endorsement of the 10th anniversary edition of my little book of Common Sense Investing, which will be coming out in the fall. And it's right there on the cover of the book. Uh, and that book has been, he, he greatly admired that book, uh, greatly admires it. And every time he speaks about it, up go the sales. He has a lot of, a, a lot of effect. But, he, you know, it, it's so close. He, he, he recommends the S&P 500 just about to every regular investor. Uh, he's leaving a trust for his wife. And he has directed it that it be 90% invested in the Vanguard 7 uh, S&P 500 uh, index fund. Do you see how he gets uh, a shameless amazing. plug it's in amazing. there? It's amazing. I love Jack it. Jack Bogle, you know, <laughs> decades on, he gets a shameless plug in there. Say that again? <laughs> you, you got the plug in for the Vanguard funds, Jack, there with Mr. Buffett. I, I, I get those. David, continue, please. <laughs> I, I, I can't avoid the plug. He was the one that plugged There me. you go. There you go. We were talking with Arthur Levin a moment ago about the, the passive versus active debate, and I asked him how close we are to settling it. What's, what's your sense of that? Well, we've seen something very – very few people have talked about this. But what we've really done is moved active to a different section, uh, exchange-traded funds, which are the big driver this year. They haven't always been in recent years, but they are right now. And that is people who are doing a lot of trading, a lot of activity in their index fund uh, investing. And, you know, you can buy an index fund and bet whether the market's going up or down today and get three times leverage. I'm not sure exactly what sense that makes, and I would recommend nobody do it. But uh, there's some very aggressive ETFs out there. There's some very undiversified ETFs out there. And there's a lot of trading. These ETFs are turning over it. Well, the Spider, the most popular stock in the world every day, the Standard & Poor's 500 ETF run by State Street, uh, has an annualized turnover at the moment of 2,000% a year. 2,000% a year. I mean, I'm the kind of guy, Tom, that thinks 3% a year is pushing the envelope. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, Jack, at this debate, and again, I look at the M&A, 
And it really just comes back to the theory, which, you know, you're expert on, among others, of modern portfolio management. What did they get wrong? The active guys will defend. Tom, let me respectfully disagree with that. You know, I had never heard of modern portfolio theory when I started the first index okay. fund back in back in uh, 1975. Uh, recommended it to the board of directors and got it approved here at Vanguard, the first index fund. And all I did was look at the record. I'm the pragmatic indexer. The record shows very clearly, and it showed the same thing to the great economist Paul Samuelson, that the record shows clearly that most managers if not all managers, cannot consistently beat the stock market. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, Tom, how could they? They're yeah. all average. They're competing with each other, and the market is the average. Yeah. So if you take out a little bit every year, you'll do better than the guys that are taking out these yeah. great hunks of money every every day. Right. Very quickly here, I'm, dis- I'm disappointed, sir, you don't have Princeton as champion of the Final Four. <laughs> Gonzaga, what is it about Gonzaga that Jack Bogle likes? Well, they're they're little... They were pretty unknown four or five years ago, yeah. uh, and uh, they've gone from being a constant underdog to a, you know, a, a rising star. And one of these days, the, the star will, will be aligned with some pretty good things. So that was my guess. Oh, that's good. Jack Bogle, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mr. Bogle, uh, one of the celebrities that we have within our Bloomberg brackets uh, today. The aerospace engineer at the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari, um, the president of the Minneapolis Fed in a recent uh, dissenter. Neil, I want to get away from the four questions you've been asked in the 47 interviews you've done since the dissent, and I want to get a little mathy. As you put in your wonderful note with a lot of good charts on why I dissented, you talk about linearity, and you talked about the vector of inflation in this worry that we get convexity or acceleration or a second derivative move in inflation at some point. Discuss the evidence from your PhDs that we can get an acceleration of inflation at a certain tipping point. Well, first of all, Tom, good to talk to you, and thanks for having me. Uh, Well, that's the thing. I'm pushing our our PhD saying, show me the evidence of this nonlinearity. And there isn't any. I mean, the, the question is, all of our models work and are based on the premise of inflation expectations being anchored. If inflation expectations get unanchored, they break somehow, then all sorts of bad things can happen. We don't know what causes inflation expectations to break or to become unanchored, but all the data right now suggests they are rock-solid anchored, and investors appropriately really believe the Federal Reserve that we right. are committed to not letting inflation take off. And so if that's the case, then I don't see this big concern that inflation is all of a sudden going to go above target. Help me with horse and cart. David Gura, this is an extremely complex economic (laughs) model of the horse before uh, the cart. When you showed up at the University of Illinois Urbana years ago, I think Champaign, I thought you, you were, you know, maybe you came on a horse and a cart or something equivalent to it. Can the Fed be the horse, or by definition, is the Fed the cart and must act ex post in light of visible evidence? Well, I don't know how else to behave and conduct policy 
other than to look at the evidence. Otherwise, we're just guessing, because for the past five or six years, the Federal Reserve has been consistently guessing, the FOMC participants, that inflation is around the corner. And if they had acted based on those guesses, they would have hurt the economy. And so I'm saying we've been guessing wrong for five or six years. Let's stop guessing. Let's just focus on the data and let the data guide us. President Kashkari, I look back on the speech that uh, Fed Chair Janet Yellen gave uh, in Chicago ahead of the last meeting, and something that she said a couple of times was the Fed has not fallen behind the curve. When it comes to uh, inflation, when it comes to the labor market, I understand you're uh, very concerned about there being slack. How worried are you about the Fed uh, falling behind the curve? I'm not. I agree with her about that, and not in terms of we're not too late. Because here's the thing, from a risk management perspective, we have very powerful tools to raise rates, to bottle up inflation if it starts to accelerate. We have far fewer tools, as do other central banks around the world, to deal with very low inflation. And so from a risk management perspective, that also tells us we should be patient, allow inflation to build back towards target. So I agree with her. I don't think we're behind the curve. But if we are, we have the tools and the will to deal with it. At the end of the last statement, it says voting against the action was Neil Kashkari, who preferred at this meeting to maintain the existing target range for the federal funds rate. You go on and write a very extended medium post explaining why, in fact, uh, you did that. Incredibly valuable to somebody like me or, or to somebody like uh, Tom. You also note that 100 percent of the medium term inflation forecasts in the summary of economic projections have been uh, too high. What's wrong with the Fed's ability to forecast right now? And is there a way to, to change the, the forecasting mechanism? You know, people are doing their very best, and we have some of the best economists, the best PhDs in the world helping us to think through these issues. I think we all have this desire to go back to normal, that we just think in a couple of years things are going to return to normal. And after the financial crisis, it has taken the economy a lot longer to return to normal. You know, remember, over time, the Fed is really just following what the economy is doing. Over the last 30 years, real interest rates have been falling all around the world, not because of the Fed, not because of central banks, because of broader economic forces, and we're adjusting around that overall trend. And so uh, I want to return to normal, too. Let's let the data guide us. Let's stop guessing. The other thing I put in that piece Mm. is I think we're behaving as though 2% is a ceiling rather than a target. If we really truly believe that 2% is a target, then we should be behaving that way. Within this is a working paper at your Minneapolis Fed. Folks, if you're just joining us, Neil Kashkari with us, president of the Minneapolis Fed, Amador, Bianchi, Bacola, and Perry about exchange rates and dollar dynamics at the zero bound. What's wrong with getting away from the zero bound? Did Chair Yellen and can we have a few measured rate rises to give us some wiggle room if we've got to go back down at some point? Well, you know, I don't find that argument compelling. It's like saying you're driving down the highway and you think there might be a hill coming up, so let's let off the gas now so that if a hill comes up, we can floor it. You know, you're much better off just maintaining your speed, and then if you reach a hill, give it what remaining gas you have left. So this preemptive raise uh, hikes just so we can turn around and cut them, I, I don't actually think that that makes sense. I think we just need to allow the economy to continue to perform, allow inflation to gradually go up to target, allow the labor market to continue using up slack, and then raise rates when the data call for it. You mentioned the data. What's your preferred set of data when it comes to inflation? What are you looking at? What's Neil Kashkari looking at? You know, there's, the number one thing that I look at is 12-month core PCE, personal consumption expenditures. 
Uh, at the prior FOMC meeting, it was around 1.71% year over year. It's now ticked up to 1.74%, but it's still well below our 2.0% target. And the reason we focus on core is because core is the best predictor we know of of future headline inflation. So we do care about headline inflation, but we know that energy and food bounce around a lot. So we focus on core as a forward indicator. Right. Give us an update on too big uh, to fail. Are you and James Diamond on speaking terms? <laughs> well, I haven't spoken to him in quite a while. Um, I, I would hope that he would admit that J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Bank of America are still too big to fail because – if they got into trouble today, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury would have to step in to stabilize them, not for their own sake, but because of the damage they would do to the U.S. economy. And I think mm-hmm. Republicans and Democrats agree we need to do something about that. President Kashkari, thank you so much. Neil Kashkari with the Minneapolis Fed uh, with, with a, a different view and an important uh, view. I can't say enough about uh, their website. All of the Feds have distinctive websites, and the Minneapolis Fed has a terrific linkage here of their district, including agriculture, along with uh, the independence that's been seen for uh, decades from the Minneapolis uh, Fed. Uh, Neil Kashkari today on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line. What did we learn, David? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm really glad that he did write this uh, this piece on yes. Medium. And I, I, I don't know if he's going to do that after every meeting, but it is certainly uh, insightful. You know, we listen to the speeches, we look at the transcripts of the speeches, yeah. but to have this sort of considered uh, assessment of why he voted the way he did, yes. I thought was great. So I hope 100% agree and, uh, with great charts, which you would expect uh, from engineer uh, Kashkari as well, a real different take on how to do uh, monetary transparency. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.